Hello, and welcome to the James Sheets Podcast. This podcast features the sermons and preaching messages of James Sheets, who pastored throughout West Virginia for many years. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave a five-star review and share a memory of James with us. Let's listen as Pastor James Sheets begins his message. The Old Testament. We're going to be preaching from uh, the book of Job this morning and again tonight. Here from the first chapter. We're entitling the one this morning, the message this morning, The Perfect Man, from the first five verses of this chapter. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. There were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camel, and 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 she-asses, and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons went and feasted in their houses, every one in his day, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And it was so, when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them, and rose up early in the morning, and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. Let us unite together in prayer. Our Father, as we look into your word this morning, we pray that you would bless us as a congregation. We come from so many different backgrounds with different problems and burdens this morning. We don't know each one's problems, but Lord, you know them. We don't know the condition of each one's heart, but you know. And it may very well be, Lord, that there are those in our congregation who have never given their heart and life to you. You know this, and they know it. May today be a day of decision for the Lord Jesus Christ. But Lord, those of us who are saved... May this morning be a time of renewal of our faith in you, a time of searching our own hearts and souls that we might be like this man Job, whom you found so much delight in. Would you bless us this morning and bind us together with the power of your spirit, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would anybody like to claim this morning that you're perfect? Nobody wants to admit to that. No one at all. Arlie, I thought surely you would hold up your hand and say that Diane was, but you're not even going to do that. This man, the Lord says, was perfect. He lived in a country called Uz. That sounds like the Wizard of Oz, but it really isn't. There was a country called Uz that got its name 
from the grandson of Shem, who was the son of Noah, you may remember. And when Uz settled his family, located it in an area that was southeast of Palestine, it took his name as the name of the country. And in this area, in this land, lived a man by the name of Job. And the scripture says this man was perfect. Now we can immediately begin to take exception with that statement because we have learned in Sunday school that there was not anyone perfect except one, and that is Jesus Christ. And although we might like to say that we're perfect, that we're good, that we're upright and all the things that we might apply to ourselves, we can realize that in relationship to Jesus Christ, we're indeed nothing. We're poor and miserable. We're perhaps even naked spiritually as we stand before the Lord. We have nothing to build ourselves up with, to proclaim that we have anything at all. And indeed, the Lord discouraged us from, from coming out with any kind of statement about ourselves as to how good we are. He said, in fact, if you go to a banquet, don't go up to the head table and sit there. Sit down somewhere low in, in the group, and if you're deserving, somebody else will invite you up. Don't make the assumption that you yourself have the right to this higher position. Job made no claim to a higher position. He would have not been one who, have gone, who would have gone to the head table automatically uh, at all. He would have been one of those who would have thought himself least in the kingdom. Paul thought of himself in those terms that he said that he was the chief of all sinners. And a person who sees himself properly in the eyes, uh, in their eyes, looking at the Lord, will have to admit that he is something or someone that deserves nothing, that he is the, uh, amongst men, a man most miserable. And yet the Lord comes along and says of one of his children that he's a perfect person. The Lord was not talking about perfection as far as being sinless is concerned, for there are none, none sinless, save Jesus Christ himself. But he was talking in terms of a man who was living his life as close as he possibly could to the way that a person ought to live. He was living a righteous life as, as much as could be found in any person. He was talking about an inward attitude of life that was expressed outwardly. And here we began to have difficulties in our own lives in that what we portray externally may or may not reflect what is the real person. Now let me say it another way. That which comes out of us really reflects what we are. really reflects what we are, not that which we portray externally. 
I suspect that there would not be any of us this morning who would be willing to go under the scrutiny of a complete, thorough examination of his life and have it exploited. This is one of the things that uh, really bothers me about our political process, that is, and, and maybe it's well that it happens this way, but it seems to me that somebody digs up, and I use that term purposely, digs up every possible thing that can be discovered about a person, whether good or bad, but it's always the bad that is dug up. And that person's life uh, is there for everybody to see. I am sure that that would discourage lots of people from even seeking political office, and we certainly need people who are willing to, to seek political office. That are good, moral, upright men. We need men like Job in office. But I do not think that the most of us in this congregation would be willing for our life to be portrayed on a screen in front of this church as to what kind of person we really are internally so that everybody in this congregation can see us. Anybody want to volunteer? We'll do it if anyone wants to volunteer. We'll go out and find out everything there is about you and put it on the screen and say, this is your life. On that program that used to be on the television, This Is Your Life, they didn't put those things that nobody would want to see. It was only the good things. This man's life was open and subject to scrutiny by God, and God was able to say, I've got a perfect man here, and I'm proud of him. We had this passage of Scripture in Sunday school lesson some time ago. Some time ago. But the reason this man's life was described this way is because of what was in his heart. The scripture says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And so it brings us to the point in our lives of trying to scrutinize what really are we like internally. What really is in our heart? What really do we think about each other? What really do we think about the church? What really do we think about Jesus Christ? And I'll tell you, we all know this to be true. What we really think in our heart will someday come out and people will know. But it doesn't even have to come out before the Lord knows. Jesus also said that it's not what goes into the person that defiles the man, it's what comes out. And he spoke those words in response to some criticism about the fact that his disciples were eating without washing their hands. And he was pointing out that it really makes little difference whether the hands are washed or not. Because that's not what, that is not what is going to defile the person. The defilement of a person is that which comes out of his heart and soul. We can all look beautiful and clean this morning, and we all have on clean clothes. We all took baths or showers. 
We all cleaned our hands. We all looked fine. And so we can fool each other into thinking that we're a mighty clean individual. But when we stand before God, he's not going to look at what we have on. He's going to look at what is inside, and what is inside is going to eventually come out. And so here is a man that God found to be moral, not externally, but internally. A man who was honest, a man who was upright, a man who was good in every way. Oftentimes, people talking about cleaning up their act. And I have heard people say that if I don't clean up my act, I'm going to hell, and I know it. Let me tell you, you can clean up your act and still go to hell. You can become moral. You can become honest. You can become upright. You can become a good citizen. You can become a member of the church. You can become all kinds of things externally. But unless this cleaning up of the act starts from the heart and comes outward, the person will still be defiled because he has not cleaned the inside. Jesus criticized the Pharisees for washing the outside of the cup so that it looked good, but didn't bother to clean the inside. And if you women wash dishes that way, you clean the outside and don't bother to wash the inside, I think not. The Lord wants a cup that is cleaned from the inside out, and then one can be considered perfect in God's eyes. What made this man so great? The answer is right there in the first verse. He feared God. He feared God. Someone has said that Christians fear God because he pardons. Sinners fear God because he punishes. Let me ask you this morning, why do you fear God? Do you fear God because he has pardoned your sins, or do you fear God because he will punish you for your sins? The word fear that we want to use here this morning, and I, I think is, is certainly appropriate, and that is he had a reverence for God. He had a reverence for God. One of the most disturbing things that I ever experienced, and I'm sure you have as well, is to listen to someone on Sunday morning in church speak praises of God only to hearing him curse the name of God on Monday. There's something wrong with that direction. There's something wrong with a person who can teach a Sunday school class or can preach or can sing in the choir or can pray or do whatever or can simply be in the congregation on Sunday morning and sing praises to God from the hymn book who on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday can curse like any sailor. And sailors have been given credit for being the worst cursers in the world. I don't know if that's true or not, so I'll use that term. This man was so fearful of God that it says he eschewed evil. You know what that word means? 
It means he was so afraid of being contaminated with sin that he ran from it. He would not have anything to do with it. He would not even entertain a thought of sinning. Can any of us say this morning that we are this kind of person? who has not and will not entertain a thought of sinning, who will turn quickly from sin, and if it appears in our path, we will get away from it as fast as possible. I suspect that most of us linger around and, and drool over it, and knowing that we ought not do that, but having all kinds of thoughts as to oh, how we would love to participate in this particular sin, but not Job. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6.17, Come ye out from among them. And he was talking to Christian people. Come ye out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Be separate. There ought to be a difference in the lifestyle of the Christian and the non-Christian. We ought to be known by what we do and how we live and what we say. And we are known by that. We are known. What does your reputation on the streets of Madison and Danville and if there was a street in Turtle Creek? What is your reputation? What do people know you by? What do they think of when they see you? Here is a man that hates evil so much, or a woman that hates evil so much, that he will run from it. Or here is one who enjoys it and lolls around to participate in it. So I think we could say this man is perfect because he strived to be perfect. He worked at it. He was not going to allow himself to be tainted by sin. And as a consequence, verses 2 and 3 seem to indicate that God had blessed him pretty well. He had seven sons and three daughters. That was the good proportion. In those days, they wanted sons. They weren't too much interested in having daughters. They could have had uh, sex selection in those days. They probably would have welcomed it because they would have had all sons and the human race would cease to exist shortly. They had, he had seven sons and three daughters, but he also had a tremendous amount of possessions to the point that he was considered to be the greatest man in all of the East. In all the Orient, he was the wealthiest, most prosperous individual in that portion of the world. I preached last Sunday night from Malachi 3.10 which was dealing with the relationship of a person to his possessions, and the, the verse of Scripture pointed out that God promises a blessing upon those who faithfully take care of that which he has put in their hands. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out the blessing that there shall not be room enough to contain. Do you believe that? 
Here was a man who seems to be the, the uh, very essence of this promise, a man who had been found faithful to the point that he was considered perfect by God, who had well taken care of all that had been placed in his hands, and God had blessed him abundantly with all the children that he had, plus all the possessions that he had. He was a wealthy, mighty man. But I want you to notice something about these passages, these verses of Scripture that maybe you never thought about before. It's almost always passed over. As a matter of fact, I don't ever recall hearing anybody preach or teach about verses 4 and 5. Verses 4 and 5 don't deal with Job. They deal with his family. These seven boys and three girls. What did these fellows do? They had a party all the time. They would go from one's house to the other house, back and forth. Everybody had their set time. It's your time to put on the party. And they would all collect. And the seven boys invited the three sisters. And so they and their families would come at set times. Everybody took their turn. I would suggest to you that there is at least a hint in this passage of Scripture that Job's family didn't follow Job in their lifestyle. That these were party-going people who thought nothing more than having a good time and didn't take seriously their relationship to the Lord like Job took. Now we can't prove that for this scripture, but at least I think there's the hint there. These children did not follow the pattern that their father had established. Now we remember the scripture in Proverbs 22.6 when it says, Train up a child in the way that he should go, and when he is old he will not depart from it. That doesn't seem to jibe. That uh, apparently uh, Job did not do a good job training up his children. We don't know what kind of training he gave his children. There's a problem with that verse, Proverbs 22.6, when it says train up a child the way that he that he should go and he's old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the way that he should go certainly ought to be the intents and the desire of every parent. But there are many parents who do not train their children. They leave it to the church to give them their spiritual education. They leave it to the school system to give them their secular education. They leave it to the uh, to society to provide other things and the parent has almost and I say almost has almost given up the child to others to train this is the wrong thing the responsibility of training remains primarily with the parents and not with society not with the church and I think not even with the school system we have properly uh, established school systems. We have a properly established Sunday school. But this does not mean that this is the only place where a child ought to be trained. The amount of Bible knowledge our kids have ought to be more than what we give them on Sunday morning and on Tuesday nights in, in uh, our uh, BYF group. It's got to be more than that. It is a responsibility of the family, of the mother and father, to train the child. But I know and it happens continually that parents, in fact, encourage a loose lifestyle. 
I have heard parents say about their sons, well, they've got to sow their wild oats. Let me tell you, if our sons and our daughters sow wild oats, they're going to reap a wild crop. I do not believe that a child has to sow wild oats. I do not subscribe to that statement, boys will be boys. In the text that we're speaking of this morning. I think that it's time that we say boys and girls will be like mom and dad. But boys and girls cannot be like mom and dad until mom and dad have put their own house in order. And if boys will be boys and follow their dads and girls will be girls and follow their mother, then it puts a tremendous responsibility upon mom and dad to be sure they're walking the right path. Now there's one thing that we do find about Job, and that is that he had a concern for his children. And he prayed about them. He prayed for them. He, he offered offerings in their behalf because in verse 5, down near the end of it, he said, it may be, he wasn't sure, it may be that my sons have sinned. This reflects in my mind a keen concern for Job, uh, that Job has for his children. He's not going to take any chances. There is a good possibility that they have sinned and he's going to try to overcome that. He says it may be that they have sinned and have cursed God in their heart. A child gets involved in drugs. And I'm seeing more and more of that every day. I'm thinking of a parent who came to me not too long ago concerned about the fact that their child, a junior high student, was heavy into drugs. When I was a junior high student, I didn't even know there was such a thing. This child came home with all ten fingers burned on the end and did not want to go to school, was afraid to go, and finally when the story came out, there was a child who was forcing this boy to give up his lunch money and the refusal was to pin him in the restroom and to burn his fingers. We're living in a society in which the cruelty that we are seeing evidenced by Satan worship that many of you have been talking about and saw the thing on television is a reality. It's time we wake up and recognize that we're, we have a world different today than most of us who are adults grew up in. When I counseled that parent about going to the school and what 
because that parent was ready to take the school apart, and I had to caution on that, that I'm not so sure that that's the right place to start. And I cautioned that parent, the proper place to start was with your own child. Listen, your child is on drugs, and your child is, is and this child was stealing. Your child is stealing to gain money to buy drugs, and now your child is under pressure from another child who's doing the same thing to give up his money so that that child can have money to go buy drugs, and then you're going to pay physically the penalty if you don't. We're living in a tragic society. Yes, it may be that our sons have sinned and our children have sinned, and we need to be out there where they are knowing something about them that we can still in them some kind of a lifestyle that's adequate. So they're on drugs and they're going with alcohol and, and all other things. And sometimes these kids then are brought into court and I have had parents say to me, and I don't know what happened, I was a good parent. I trained my children up the way they ought to go. I gave them everything they wanted. And there is the key to the thing. They did not do for their child what they should have done. They were being obedient to the desires of the child. They may have given that child everything as far as, as uh, pleasure is concerned and that money would buy, but one thing they failed to do, and that is give that child a foundation upon which his life could be built. That's what we need to be giving our children. Job has some concern that he may not have done well in that category. And it may very well be that he had failed with his children. He said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. There may not have been any outward evidence in the lives of his seven sons and his three daughters that they had sinned, but he knew that the sin of the heart would be the sin that would destroy the body. And all through the scripture, we have talking uh, passages that talk about the nature of the heart and the conditions of the heart. Over in Acts chapter 8, I'll read it quickly to you. When Simon Magus, and I preached about him some time ago, and some of you remember that name, wanted to buy the power to heal, and Peter uh, really gave him a good talking to, and he said in verse 20, Peter said to him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this manner, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. There is the key to the whole thing. If the heart is not right, there is nothing that we can do that will make up for that deficiency. Nothing. No amount of church attendance will make up for a deficiency of a heart that's not right with God. No amount of putting money in the offering plate will make up for that. No amount of being moral and all the other things will make up for those things. If, if one's heart is not right, then one has sinned in his heart and will be cursed of God. I want to ask you this morning. As Proverbs 23, 7 says, As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. We've already admitted that we're not like Lot. And I think the question that we need to ask, perhaps, are we like his sons? 
who may have sinned in our heart? How is your heart? What is the real nature, the real condition of your heart? Who are you really? What comes out of you and me? The color of our heart, the nature of it, will make its way out in our speech, in our lifestyle, in our reaction to people. There was a man who lived in the country of Uz who was perfect in God's sight. I think we need to go live in Uz. Let's become, in God's eyes, people that he can be proud of. Because we try our heart, all our heart, to live as righteously as we possibly can in God's sight. Shall we pray? Thank you for listening to today's message. If you like what you hear, hit the subscribe button. You'll receive automatic notifications and downloads when a new message is added to the podcast. Also, please leave a five-star review and take the opportunity to share stories, memories, and appreciation for James Sheets and how God used him to impact your life. If you'd like to know why and how this podcast got started, check out our first episode. Lastly, if you want to donate to help offset the cost of operating this podcast, you'll find a link to our PayPal account in the podcast description and email us at James sheets.podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and remember to trust in God for today and for all of your tomorrows.